Hey, do you teach yoga? Have you ever trained to lead yoga classes to be a yoga therapist? Have you ever owned a yoga studio? Maybe even just wondered what it was like for the women and men up there in front of the room on their mats, leading you through endless Surya Namaskars, down dogs, and pranayamas galore? Well, these are their stories and mine. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, a 20-year yoga teacher, 10-year yoga therapist, yoga studio owner, and co-founder of a yoga-focused nonprofit. I've done a lot in the yoga world over the last 20 years, pretty much everything except had a water cooler. You know, a place to share stories, talk about struggles, successes, and find other people who do the same thing that I do. Welcome to Working in Yoga, a podcast and substitute water cooler for yoga folks to connect and build community, to share our unique profession, our challenges, and our journeys with the world. Hey friends, welcome to Working in Yoga. This week on the podcast, I have Anne Swanson as a guest, and we talk about meditation, mindfulness, and perfectionism. Last week, we talked to Dr. Sham Ranganathan from yogaphilosophy.com, and he talked to us about how we can reason and think our way through our thoughts on perfectionism. This week, Anne takes a bit of a different approach. We start talking about her books and how when you're a writer, there are parameters that are laid out for those who are working within that space and how we sometimes have to be a little extra creative as we weave all the aspects of yoga into our projects. And sometimes that makes us all a bit nervous. I think we've all felt that kind of pressure as yoga professionals, not just those of us who write. We've all wondered if we were doing yoga teaching right. And lots of us have slid down the path of inquiry about if we were good stewards of our yogic tradition. This I think goes double for those of us who are people pleasers and wanna be the A plus students in the room. Anne and I talk about those things, and as a bonus, she shares several different easy ways to incorporate more meditation into your day, as well as some practices that we do together, and you can join us too. Before we begin, though, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode of the podcast. And if you're feeling spicy and love this series, please leave a review so that we can breadcrumb this podcast out for other yoga professionals. Also, I really want to encourage you to subscribe to my newsletter to get more details about the podcast and become part of my new series of suggestions about how yoga pros can more skillfully regulate ourselves. One of the things that has come up so many times in this season and in general on the podcast is how complicated and tricky it is to be a wellness professional when we ourselves feel like we're failing at our own wellness. I have some suggestions to get us back on track without shame or adding to our already too long to-do lists. Find my link to the newsletter in the show notes. And finally, thanks as usual to Sunlight Streams and Sunlight Apothecary, our sponsors for the podcast. We love love season at the Apothecary and coming in February, we have not one, but two tongue-in-cheek named teas for you to enjoy. The first is Tastes Like Your Book Boyfriend, which is a black tea with hints of chocolate and spice. In your mouth, it feels like having all the dishes done at your house without needing to ask anyone to do them. And the second tea coming in February is the cinnamon roll, which tastes like a cinnamon roll and someone wanting just the best for you. Grab them both at www.thesunlightexperience.com 
backslash apothecary. Now, on to our talk with Anne Swanson. Hey friends, welcome to Working in Yoga. Okay, I can't believe that I'm even going to introduce this guest today because I actually teach from her book. So it's very like this full circle moment for me. So welcome Anne Swanson to the podcast. (laughs) She's the author of The Science of Yoga. Anne, tell everybody who you are and what you do. My name is Anne Swanson, and yeah, I wrote Science of Yoga, but I have a new book coming out called Meditation for the Real World that I'm very excited about. And I have been teaching yoga in the yoga world for almost 15 years now, and uh, perfectionism has been a big part of my journey. I am a self-proclaimed recovering perfectionist. <laughs> that is my addiction. I I even just found out I have a positive blood and my my doctor said, you're an A plus student. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> I always had to have the A pluses and, and from a very, very young age was like that. And it's really shaped my journey and my meditation practice as well. I originally um, came to yoga like many people to work on my own stuff. I was very anxious, which goes hand in hand with perfectionism, (laughs) as well as dealing with chronic pain. And I came to yoga during a time where I had been rejected from a life path I thought I was going to go for. And so it was a big turning point for me. I was actually living in China and I got this rejection letter and I realized I needed to go a new path. And I started doing tons of yoga and Tai Chi and meditation and ended up doing my teacher training in China. My teachers were Indian and they said, you know what? You're close enough. Why don't you go to India? So I went to India and studied yoga in India and did my 500 hour training there with uh, an amazing teacher, Yogi Shivadas. And I came back to the US empowered by this knowledge, but feeling like as the recovering perfectionist I am, the best way to be the best yoga teacher would be to go into the medical professional profession and become a doctor or a physical therapist or something like that to have that knowledge of anatomy as well as uh, the, the philosophy that I had gotten in India. And so I studied and did for the pre-med course load, worked in a cadaver lab, uh, became a massage therapist, just worked on anatomy and physiology for many years, thinking I was going to go to be a physical therapist toward the end of that. But then very last moment, I found out about a yoga therapy program, a master's of science yoga therapy degree at Maryland University of Integrative Health. And I ended up joining that. And then... I was so lucky after that, a few years after that, I was able to write Science of Yoga. I had this amazing opportunity to work with a phenomenal team at DK and the illustrators best in the world to write Science of Yoga. So good. (laughs) They are phenomenal, Aaron and Claire. And then um, it's been years now, five years. And now I just finished my next book with the same publisher, DK, and an amazing illustrator uh, who does work for the New York Times and the New Yorker. And I worked with Dr. Sarah Lazar, who's a meditation researcher at Harvard, to get the science just right in this book. So it has that combination of the science as well as the practical tools. 
and it's coming out um, February 6th in the U.S. and earlier in the U.K. So I love that. So I think that we are our best when we have one foot in the true science medical world so that we can speak that language. And also we have this other foot in sort of the esoteric like tradition and philosophy of yoga. And I actually see you bridging that gap really well. Um, it's I think it's a difficult and complicated line to straddle. And also it's difficult to feel like you're doing a good job when you have one foot in either lane like how are you doing that for your own self in your own work in your own practice like how are you straddling that line because i think it's hard for us yeah it's interesting i just put out a survey asking people what would they like me to improve in science of yoga because we're going to do an updated version and uh the feedback i got you know the title of the book is science of yoga but some of the feedback was like add more history of yoga, add more uh -huh. philosophy, which I actually feel like I added a lot of philosophy considering they yeah. did not want that. They, they pushed me away from that. And I kept weaving it in talking about yeah. some scars with neuroplasticity and just weaving in the philosophy. But, um, you know, I got a lot, add more philosophy. I'm like, I don't know if we understand the assignment. The book is science of yoga and you're going to get people that are, everybody's a critic, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So um, I, I appreciate that, you know, that there needs to be the history and the philosophy side of it. And there's so many amazing teachers that specialize in that, that I direct people to all the time. I specialize more in the science and the therapeutics. Yes, I weave that in. It's important, but um, that's my focus. And I just have yeah. to recognize that I don't know everything about the history and everything about the philosophy <laughs> of yoga also. And that's not what I'm writing a book about. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's academic researchers who are doing the history and philosophy side of things. I actually think that's a really funny piece of feedback, because I actually agree, you did a really nice job of putting like, the philosophy inside a book that is about the science. And I, I sometimes people think maybe some folks in the yoga industry don't quite understand what it is to slide very directly into a science-based world into like western peer-reviewed like scientific data and research that's a, that's a different language set that's a different skill set than what most of us are doing in our studios and our houses um i'm curious did you do something similar with the meditation book like are you kind of working on those like med because meditation is so much more esoteric i think than like asana than our movement practice how are you bridging that gap in the meditation book originally the meditation book was going to be the science of meditation that's yeah. what we were discussing yeah. originally but i kept saying i want practices in there i want the actual practice and how to do it and so that pushed us to change toward the direction of titling it meditation for the real world. But the science and the reasoning and the research is woven into each real world problem that you may have, whether it's chronic pain, imposter syndrome, having trouble falling asleep. There are practical meditations to help you deal with it. And then I dove into the research for each of them to figure out which techniques have shown to be the most effective for those specific issues, as well as looking at the tradition. What do we traditionally recommend? And sometimes they align, sometimes they actually don't. <laughs> so that was interesting <laughs> to see. Um, but I think that one of the things that 
always blows me away about research on yoga and meditation is that the researchers themselves practice. Like they're not just doing this because there's tons of money in yoga and meditation research, doing it because they have a passion. They, they know that it transforms lives because it has transformed their life. And so a lot of them do integrate the philosophy into the programs and integrate, um, for example, with yoga research, a lot of the yoga research, it's not just asanas and do this pose. It is incorporating meditation and chanting and philosophy applied to the protocols. And the same thing with meditation is a lot of times the meditations incorporate energetics. I was just writing meditations this morning for an app and the app is directed towards people who are absolute beginners um, with many chronic diseases. So they don't have that yoga background. And in the loving kindness meditation, I mentioned bringing your awareness to your heart center. And I saw the debates between the like 10 different people for the organization that were reviewing my meditation before I recorded. And they were saying, heart center, do you mean chest? And then somebody's like, I think she means the word heart is important because of the like heart chakra. And maybe we should just say the heart uh, because they don't want to say chakra. You know, they still want to incorporate like the meaning of it. So they were open to keeping that, but they just didn't want to incorporate that word. And I said, you know, the research says heart center, like the research study I'm basing this off of says, bring your awareness to your heart center. And that, that kind of, uh, clarified it for them. They're like, okay, well then let's do that. Okay. That's really interesting. Like, oh my goodness. There's a lot that I want to unpack there, but that is a really interesting, like, line you have to walk about fighting fighting for maybe that's a good term whatever else you might call it like the language that we use in our spaces i mean you could trip over any yoga studio and they would say heart center for something or another i mean sometimes we say things that are a little more alarming like open your chest up and i'm like that's a medical emergency we should not be saying (laughs) we want that close (laughs) but like that's interesting that then you have to slide into you know a publishing review or a book review or scientists who are not necessarily familiar with our languaging and then bridge that gap as well. So diving into the perfectionism thing, does that just like trigger everything for you? Because you telling me that story is making me like twitch a little, like how do I get an A on this project? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I think, you know, the more you work in something like yoga, the more, the more you're going to see that everybody has a different approach and that everyone's a critic, you know, everyone has their own way of doing it that they think is the best. And um, so you're not going to please everyone. I think that that's something that I remind myself of all the time. Um, But I think it's really important to be able to adapt these practices so that they can be accepted by an organization with 10 people looking over them that's going to be releasing it to, you know, tens of thousands of people, right? Like, that's that's where we can really bridge. So if you can let go of that need of being able to please everyone, like maybe some yoga students would listen to these and be like, oh, she didn't say heart chakra. So she's not keeping the, the, the 
purity of yoga, but they wouldn't have accepted it. I wouldn't have gotten the job. And I still did incorporate the philosophy, but at a, at a place where absolute beginners could approach it and feel comfortable. Yeah. Let's talk about people pleasing for a second, yeah. because I feel like I'm just going to speak for, for myself and my team of people who I employ. I feel like there's a lot of us going around. Do you see that within our space? And how do you deal with that? Like that people pleasing tendency in yourself? Yeah. So we all know of fight, flight, or freeze, right? There's fight, flight, or freeze, or fawn. That sense of wanting to please everyone. And usually if you have that fawn approach to stress, you have grown up in a family where you were the one that kind of smoothed everything over in the family. It's me. You relate. The problem, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So when we have that, we don't always listen to our in internal compass, our heart. We don't always set healthy boundaries. But ironically, when you set healthy boundaries, people respect you more. Yeah. So it's it's a process to learn that. Um, I actually have a technique for people pleasing in the book and meditation for the real world. Um, well, you know what? It might be interesting if we did it right now. Um, okay. So a lot of times with people pleasing, you have like a issue that you're not sure if you could should do it or not. You know, should I take on this project? Should I help this person with this? Should I, 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 whatever example, do you have an example in your life right now that you're like, not sure of? I think so we're recording this around the holidays. I think the people pleasing that comes out around your family members is like mm -hmm. so prevalent and so real of like, I'm going to say yes to 10,000 things, even though that's not what I should be doing. And I think so many of us have that experience. Like, I'm going to say yes to mom's thing and then Aunt Jean's thing. And then I'm going to say yes to my brother's thing. Like, all of that comes. And like you said, boundaries are so key for that. But I feel like that's throughout the year, but we're recording here in holiday time. So yeah. Yes. Well, uh, Rebecca, I want you to think of a specific one in your life where you're thinking of, should I say yes or no? Right. Should I do this? And everybody listening to this, think of something in your life where you're like, should I do this? Yes or no. And I'm looking around right now because I need a coin. Do you have a coin nearby? I need a coin to no. do this meditation. <laughs> I know it's so strange. Okay. So, uh, You'll have to pause. Oh, I do. Edit. Hold you on do? one second. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Okay. For for Rebecca and for everyone at home. Yep. Heads is yes. Tails is no. Flip Got the coin. Heads. The answer is yes. Okay. Everyone, take a moment. Pause. If you're not driving, you can close your eyes <laughs> and notice how that feels in your body saying yes to whatever you were thinking of. What comes up? Do you feel more open or closed? Where in your body do you feel the sensations? What do you feel? What happens to your breath? Gently open your eyes and you now know your answer. Yeah. 
Can I tell you a really wild story that Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever told anyone, but I decided how to go to college by flipping coins. (laughs) And, and my, what I was convinced with is that the moment it's in the air before you see the results, you already know your answer. Yes. Because you've like forced your nervous system into the response that it was avoiding. Right. And I have that language now, but at the time I was just like, I don't know how to decide I'm going to flip coins. And then it would come down to it. And I would know as it was in the air, like, Oh no, I know I don't want to go there. So it almost didn't matter what came down because I'd already decided. Yeah. You did it naturally. You did it naturally. <laughs> this is a great party trick, you know, when you're chatting with someone, they're like, should I break up with my boyfriend or not? You know, they have some yeah. sort of dilemma like that. You pull out a coin, they get so nervous at the yeah. concept of it being a yes or no from a flip of a coin. Yeah. And that nervousness like comes up and brings up the emotions, right? And then the answer when they see it, what they feel, they may, they sometimes you can visibly see, oh no, oh no. Or, you know, you can see their disgust <laughs> yeah. when you're, when you're like doing it um, to somebody who has no idea what this technique is. So it's a really fun way to explore what, what does your heart want? Yeah. I love that. That's a great technique. So why are so many of us like this? I, f- I mean, I know there's people pleasers in every industry, but I do feel like we have more than our fair share within our industry. I'm curious about that. I'm curious what you think about that. I think a lot of people come to yoga like I did to deal with their own stuff. And uh, a lot of us are anxious because yoga works so well with anxiety. It really Mm -hmm. helps us manage it. Um, So I think that anxiety is often us trying to live up to the highest standards that we've created for ourselves, that society has created for ourselves. And then I think the yoga industry as a whole is really about picture perfect um, poses. And that's what gets the most likes and views. And even Science of Yoga, originally when I was approached to write the book, the cover of the book was scorpion pose, which you can imagine is very acrobatic um, pose where you're on your forearms upside down, deep back bend. And I said, I wouldn't write a book on the science of yoga with that picture. No yoga study to my knowledge has used that pose. (laughs) Nobody's studying that pose. I don't know what you think science is, but like I think of science as research and there's a lot of research packed into this book. Actually, a lot of people don't know that. One of the other feedback I got on the feedback form was cite your research. The back of the book has all the research cited. And then I have an extra resource on my website that it breaks down the research that explains each study. So um, if you want that, I'm trying to think where it is. You can email me at info at scienceof.yoga. But it's, it's really important that the research is reflected in the image on the cover as something that could be, they kept saying aspirational. All the poses need to be aspirational and they wanted to use the fanciest poses. And I just feel like we needed to not focus on the ideal, but instead focus on the reality and like what people really can do. So there was that little bit of back and forth 
um, between me and the publisher because they know what sells, right? So mm-hmm. there's that back and forth. And, and we finally found a, a great post for the cover that I think um, people yeah. can imagine doing it, it at your desk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't have to do it uh, upside it's down. It's Gomukasna on the cover, y'all. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that's actually really, I feel like there's a foresight in your thought about that because I don't know if you've seen the Yoga Alliance just released what they're calling the Yoga in the World um, survey. So they did a whole bunch of data surveys. And um, this is my favorite part of the Yoga Alliance is they do data for us so that I can read it and make decisions based on their data. But one of the data points that they released in this new study was that 57% of Americans specifically, and this was generally pretty true throughout the Western world, so the EU, the UK, Canada, Australia, that the reason people come to yoga now since COVID has shifted than what it was in 2019. 2018, 2019, people were coming for things like weight loss and physical, like, physical changes in their body. And now the number one is to relieve stress. Even in UAE, even in China, um, a lot of their their number one reason that people are coming to yoga is overall health and wellness and not weight loss, not necessarily to achieve those fitness goals. So I think it's really smart that you did that. Like you were ahead of the trend because now you're right on trend of like de-stressing and nervous system downregulation is why people see us now. Are you seeing that shift in the meditation world too? I don't know. I want to backtrack a little because I think a previous survey, and I'm not sure if it's the same Yoga Alliance survey, but I, I know I have this in Science of Yoga, so I had to look up the exact research. But they found that most people come to yoga for the physical, but most people stay with yoga for the spiritual. Yeah. So that was, they did a study in 2017 too, that they, they like co-offered with yoga journal. Um, and this is, I think the expansion of that study. Um, I was interested actually earlier, you said you studied in China, one of the research and data points that I've been seeing all over the industry, like industry publications and Yahoo finance and all that, that report on us is that actually Asia is going to overtake North America for the greatest consumer of yoga, yoga trainings, yoga products within the next five years, which I think is pretty interesting too. Like as we're like, we're shifting into like different parts of the world, which I find fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. I studied yoga in China. So my first teacher training, I had to deliver my class in Chinese. (laughs) so add a whole nother level of nervousness and perfectionism (laughs) when you're you're, uh delivering in in another language um so yeah yoga was very popular there and that was what 14 years ago when I did my training there or more so it it's um it's definitely I could see it growing you know it it makes a lot of sense Let's talk meditation a little bit more. So your book, that's not the science of meditation, but (laughs) meditation for real meditation for the real world. That's it. Meditation for the real world. Um, Tell me a little bit about 
that book as far as what you can offer folks in like regular practices that they can incorporate as yoga teachers, as yoga therapists, as yoga professionals into their classes. Because one of the things I think we were talking about before I pressed record is that trips yoga teachers up specifically is they feel unqualified to lead meditation in their classes. I did a survey and people who are yoga teachers told me that they said they don't feel qualified. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, that's a critical part of the yoga yeah. practice. And so I think that we don't emphasize it enough in teacher training programs and we don't give people enough tools. And this book is for the beginner that wants to be guided as well as the teacher because it has scripts of meditations. Mm -hmm. It has what you would say and, and like why it works for that specific issue. So if you have a theme to your class, you could open up the book to, you know, depression and get some ideas of what types of meditations might be helpful for depression. People don't always think of this, but some types of meditations actually could make some issues worse, yeah. like anxiety. Uh, they found in the research that when you focus on your internal body awareness with anxiety, it can make it worse as well as the breath being a part of that internal body awareness, it can actually make it worse. And so when dealing with anxiety, I have a totally different technique. So I think it's really important that we adapt for the populations we're teaching as well as for the themes that we're teaching. We don't only just teach mindfulness. I think that's what we all default to is just like, what I, I learned, just yeah. body awareness, mindfulness, you know, be aware of this moment, come back to the moment. There are so many techniques that have uh, research to support them, as well as a deep tradition behind them. One of the most profound techniques that I, I use for a lot of things is loving kindness meditation, yeah. which is uh, Buddhist space meditation. So there's a combination of, of all the different traditions in this book. And um, loving kindness meditation is so critical for, I think, a perfectionist or a recovering perfectionist. I want to <laughs> clarify, I don't want to call myself a perfectionist anymore, recovering, uh, is to send that loving kindness to others as well as yourself. So um, one of the things I love to do, uh, actually, I'm pretty sure in the book, I, I say for the perfectionists out there, here's my tip <laughs> on loving kindness, yes. actually. I'm pretty sure that's what I did. So um, we know loving kindness is sending that those good wishes, right? May they be safe. May they be healthy. May they be joyful. You're sending good wishes to someone. Well, often we start in a loving kindness meditation with sending good wishes to ourselves. Which is the hardest thing when you're a perfectionist. The worst. <laughs> it's the absolute hardest. Yes. So for those recovering perfectionists out there, I recommend to not only do it in the beginning to yourself, but after you've had that practice of sending loving kindness to others, to all these different groups of people, that you then send it back to yourself again, mm -hmm. because you've primed your brain to to feel compassion, to feel connection, to imagine others smiling. And now you have that like sense of compassion 
that you can direct towards yourself. So that's one technique uh, one of my teachers taught me that really helps when you are a perfectionist, um, which we can actually do that if you want, like toward the end of the, the session, if you want to like do a little Let's, loving kindness to end, yeah. end our class. Yeah. yeah. We, so one of the things that I have learned, so most yoga pros in one way or another, we're running our own businesses. We either work for ourselves or in my case, I run a studio. So other people work for me, but all those people also have their own businesses. And it is a like difficult mental, it's like mental gymnastics, right? To build your own care into your profession, into your business, into all of that. And so uh, I'm famous actually in my area. I'm the only studio that closes down from December 24th to January 1st. And I just shut my entire business down so I can lay down and rest. And I always tell people, I have to walk the talk. My job is to tell you all year long that you care for yourself. And then I have to do it for myself. But it is still, I mean, all these years later, Anne, terrifying to make a choice that is for my own benefit. And I feel like that's not an uncommon experience for people. When we start to advocate for ourselves, it becomes terrifying. How do you sort of manage that fear moment? Like you want to send love and kindness to yourself, but then ultimately when push comes to shove, the action of caring for yourself is just terrifying, I think, for a lot of us. I think that making it convenient to fit into your life rather than it being this extra 20 minutes every morning where I'm going to set aside and I have to do it after my one hour yoga practice. It's yeah, like yeah. you're setting yourself up for failure if that's what you're going to do every single day. I mean, some of y'all are great at sticking with it. I, I support <laughs> you. <laughs> but I, I feel like I, I do have a, a 10 minute, at least 10, 10 to whatever I can do every day meditation practice. Um, but the biggest difference is that I like to integrate little one minute meditations through the day. So my self-care becomes infused through my day. Simple things. Uh, this one didn't make it in the book. So this is exclusive Ooh. content for you. Um, this is what I do every single time I wash my hands, especially in public. So right now you can even imagine you're washing your hands, feeling the warmth on your skin, rubbing your hands together, that sensory awareness. And instead of singing happy birthday twice, I don't know who came up with that, but like, <laughs> who are we singing to? It's it's not... <laughs> It's not a like <laughs> beneficial sure. practice. So instead of doing that, I inhale for um four counts and exhale for six counts. And I do that three times. That would be the exact same amount of time. Yeah. How simple, I love that tip, simple, easy for those of us who are, because I, I think there's a, there's a tension for those of us where wellness and yoga is our job. We find that our practice for ourselves becomes less for us and more for the people whom we are in service of. 
So I love this tip, this idea that it doesn't have, you don't have to light all the candles. You don't have to roll out the mat, get out every single prop, make this giant like bolster fort so that you can relax. It's just washing your hands. We hopefully are all doing that <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, of course, we have all the moments that we can practice our meditation, being present in the shower and um, really taking a moment to say you're grateful to someone and appreciate people. You know, I think that that gratitude is so, so critical for our practice is just saying, I'm grateful to you. I appreciate you through your day and taking a moment to truly feel it, you know, mm-hmm. Um Uh, reflect on it and exude that light from you. You know, those are things we do in our meditation practices. We imagine a light growing from us, filling our body. Why don't you do that when you say, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for Mm -hmm. serving me coffee every day, for your smile that lights up my day. Um, Just taking those moments to like infuse it into your life. And I think as a meditation teacher, as we integrate meditations into our classes, one of the things we learn as teachers, or I hope we all learn, is that you shouldn't, when you're teaching asana, you sh- that's not your asana practice, right? You don't do the full asanas and just focus on you doing them to the extreme, right? I usually stand and watch, or I demo, and then I come up and watch once they got the hang of it. But with meditation, I actually practice while I teach. As soon as I say, feel your shoulder. Guess what I'm doing? I'm yeah. feeling my shoulder. And it's great because it helps me add the pauses because I get to take a moment to do whatever that activity I just told them to do on myself so I know how long it takes. So it also helps you with your pacing. So when I guide meditations, whether it's a yoga nidra or just a short meditation at the end of practice, whatever I tell them to do, I actually do it. And I'm I'm living it in that moment as I'm teaching. So... Before we do our loving kindness meditation, I'm going to ask you a couple tips for the yoga teachers out there specifically who are wanting to add more meditation into their classes. Like, where would you start besides buying your book, which we're all going to do when it comes out February? But before that, like, what small steps can we take to become more comfortable with adding meditation into the classes we're offering our students? I think that it's obvious that we tend to do better with our meditation at the end of class. So taking time at the end of class, whether you're in Shavasana or seated, both of those count as meditation. Um, As well as I like to give my students tips on how to integrate whatever I just taught them into the real world. Like, If we just did a loving kindness meditation, for example, say we do that at the very end of your class, you sit down, you just got out of Shavasana, everybody's relaxed. You do even just a three minute loving kindness meditation. Tell them, you know what? There's been a lot of traffic recently. And when you're in traffic and you're feeling stressed, rather than feeling frustration, look at somebody's car, look at them and take a moment, just send them loving kindness. Hmm. Take a moment and just say, may you be safe. May you be healthy. And notice how that changes your mood. So I like to take 
whatever we practiced and give them a real world tip of how to apply this into their lives, that they're going to practice that later and they're going to think of you. They're going to come back to class. They're going to see the effects in their life. Um, so I think that that's a really important component is m- making it real world to them, not just esoteric. Yeah. Um, how did you, in your book, sort of guide people out of the tendency to think meditation is esoteric? Like, for example, people will come and see me as a yoga therapist and they'll say, I'll say, I need you to go to the gym for your brain. That's what meditation is. You go to the gym, you do reps for your arms. I want you to do reps for your brain. And that's how I can help you sleep. How did you do that? Because it's real world tactile things, right? That we can say to people, how do you, what did you say in your book that sort of encourages people to do that too? So there's several chapters in the book. The first chapter is about the like science of it and the, what is meditation? What does the science say about it? And really grounding in reality, uh, what is the most cutting edge science and why this is going to help you and how can you do it? Um, And then the book goes into ways to help your mind, ways to help your body. And the last chapter is how to integrate it into your life. So I think that um, I I think people really respond to knowing a little bit of the science and you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to explain it and know everything at the highest level, but to be able to communicate the the benefits of why this is going to help. Um, I think that that can be really helpful for students to come back because they're like, wow, this is going to help me long-term uh, with my brain health, with my immunity, with my chronic pain, with my anxiety, whatever their, their issue may be, which we all have these issues. Yeah. Okay, let's do our loving kindness meditation and then we'll slide into how people can find you. Absolutely. So whether you are actually doing something or you have a moment where you can sit down and close your eyes, either way, this works. So take a moment and settle, noticing your breath. Repeating these words to yourself as you imagine yourself glowing a light from your heart center, as you imagine yourself smiling and at ease. May I be safe. May I be healthy. May I be joyful. May I be free from suffering. May I be at ease. And now we'll do this for a stranger. Let's start with a stranger today. Think of someone maybe you don't know that well, maybe the person that served you coffee, somebody standing in front of you in line or somebody in traffic and visualize them glowing, smiling. May they be safe. May they be healthy.
May they be joyful. May they be free from suffering. May they be at ease. And now let's go ahead and imagine someone you love, someone who's easy to love. Maybe it's your child, your lover, your pet. Imagine them smiling and at ease. May they be safe. May they be healthy. May they be joyful. May they be free from suffering. May they be at ease. Now let's imagine a difficult person, not a 10 out of 10 difficult level, maybe a seven out of 10, somebody annoying you or you're frustrated with right now. May they be safe. May they be healthy. May they be joyful. May they be free from suffering. May they be at ease. And the last one before we return to ourselves is visualizing all beings. And throughout history, throughout the world, throughout the universe, may they be safe. May they be healthy. May they be joyful. May they be free from suffering. May they be at ease. Very last, ourselves once again. You might notice it feels a little different now that you've practiced. Sending yourself loving kindness. May I be safe. May I be healthy. May I be joyful. May I be free from suffering. May I be at ease. Feeling that ease wash over you. And bringing this sense with you, this kindness for others and self, with you for the rest of your day, evening, And tell everyone where to find you. Well, definitely head to meditationfortherealworld.com. I have pre-order bonuses on there, including um, if you get this after it's come out, but ideally, you know, pre-orders mean a lot to a, a writer, an artist. So um, meditationfortherealworld.com and you'll get 
audio meditations, actually an album I'm working on of meditation music that specifically changes your brain waves you can use in your teaching also. So um, definitely head there. And um, if you have any questions for me, you can always just email me at info at scienceof.yoga. Thank you so much for joining us today, having this conversation about all of our internal perfectionists that we're recovering from. I really loved having you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And y'all, we have so many amazing books coming out in our industry in the next six months. I cannot even begin to contain my excitement as a dedicated reader. Go pre-order Anne's book from the show notes. Now, here are our key takeaways. First, when we have been the person in our family or community that soothes everything over for everyone else, or the person who gets really high praise in early life environments like school for doing well, it is easy to think that this is the path that we need to stick with as an adult. Being good feels good, it feels safe, and it feels like what you're supposed to do. Instead, consider how messiness and even failure leads to wildly creative experiences and joy over time. I know it feels scary at first, but embrace the mess and see where it leads you. Next, sending loving kindness to yourself when you're a person with perfectionistic tendencies can honestly feel like a joke at first. I remember once when I was training to be a yoga therapist in 2010, one of the teachers leading the asana class we were taking repeated the phrase, you are safe, you are whole, and you are just where you need to be over and over again. You know what my brain's thought was when I heard that? Babe, you don't know me. This is one of the things that we often think is perfectionists. Our experience of our failures should always outweigh the softness and kindness that we receive from others. If that's relatable to you, go ahead and re-listen to Anne's guided loving kindness meditation and really take on the idea that you are worthy and whole and deserving of love and kindness, especially from yourself and just like everyone else. Finally, go flip a coin. Anne suggested this on the podcast, and I have actively practiced a similar version of this meditation for years. Anne tells us to find something that we are struggling to decide on. Take a coin and flip it. Heads is yes, you do it. Tails is no, you don't. Once you get the result, sit with it for a bit and see how that feels in your body. Now, in my experience, it is kind of that force of your nervous system to make a decision that creates a bit of that internal wisdom that we're always wanting to tap into to help guide us through making that choice. Give it a try and let me know what you think. Now, next week on the podcast is an interview with the hilarious Colin Hall, whose handle on Instagram is at Colin Yogan. So go ahead and follow him if you don't already. And believe it or not, we actually do make it through this whole podcast without breaking down into too many fits of laughter. I'm going to be honest, I'm proud of us both. What Colin and I are talking about? Well, why we are all so damn serious. I will catch you next week around the water cooler, my friends. And as always, thank you for listening. It is truly humbling to me, and I am so grateful to be able to share all of this amazing content with you.